Welcome back to the Madison's Forwards Apostrophe S Backwards Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Ponywaz, and all as always, I'm joined by the pinky to my brain, Dan Fallon. I think we've used that one, but maybe well, we, not, because it could have been on one of the now many. infamous list of lost pods. I, I'm going to keep using it. Uh, Dan, what are three things you're thankful for? Ooh, three things I'm thankful for. Um, first and foremost, producer Hannah. I think that goes without saying. This uh, entire operation, which we have proven time and again, is a house of cards. Um, but when she's around, it's a slightly more stable house of she cards. She is the, the gorilla glue to our house of cards. Yes, I, w- I would say that. I would also give a uh, big a big thank you uh, to the Give Me Some Truth podcast studios here at the corner of uh, Monroe and Glenway. When we conceived of this podcast, obviously my first concern was, holy hell, where do we actually record this thing? And you said, hey, idiot, we have a studio at my office. So um, I'd say a big thank you uh, uh, to them as well for letting us do this ridiculous show here. Uh, third thing, it's got to be the flock. Yeah, uh, uh, hard to argue with the flock, isn't it? Uh, no, I mean, I argue with them all the time, but it, it is difficult and challenging to argue with them because they're much smarter and wittier, and they do way more work to make well, this team and, worth and, supporting and, and than let's either be honest, I do. Like their photo ch- shops, uh, sort of better. Than yeah, I mean, the picture yours. that Andrew sent to me of myself was, um, I mean, I told him he could polish a turd. Um, that was, I was very, imp- I've used that picture like nine it times is, already. It, it's on your business card. <laughs> it I is. Think it is. is. It, correctly. It's the one of you holding, uh, Leo's paper mache fling- <laughs> flamingo, which is, it's not, it's stucco, right? Yeah. yeah it's like it's stucco. It, if it, it weighs about 37 pounds. I think it's more than that. Yeah. Um, now Keith, I know you don't like to, uh, reveal sh- slash show any emotion whatsoever. Any three things you'd be thankful for here as uh, we, as we come upon the Thanksgiving holiday? Well, first, uh, you know, I would reiterate, you know, Dan's, uh, three, three thank yous, uh, plagiarism. You know, I, uh, well, you know, I've never had, a, I'm a white male. I'm not, I'm not required to have original ideas. <laughs> I just copy them from my underlings, Dan. <laughs> Uh, We're not the first two guys to have a soccer podcast. Darn it all. Wearing uh, tweed. Somebody, somebody beat us to this. <laughs> and quoting uh, obscure French philosophers. Uh, there is, I don't think I can think of another soccer podcast First of there. all, that, that podcast uh, is British in origin, and they do not go across the channel. That's they true. Don't, they don't go French. That's like true. We go French. That's true. We are, we are looking, I have to say, like autumn took a shit in this office. Let's be honest. You are wearing... <laughs> What what are you wearing? Describe for us what you're wearing. I am wearing Fallon. a uh, authentic Irish uh, wool fisherman's sweater. Um, that, that was, was procured through what catalog? Yeah, I was, uh, funny you should ask, Keith. Uh, a few years ago, my you know these these catalogs that just show up at your house, and you're like, how the hell do we get on this list? It was the National Geographic ca- uh, catalog. They sell kind of goods from around the world that are actually made by artisans. And my wife was kind of laughing about this. And then she was actually like, there's some really nice stuff in here. And uh, we picked out this fine sweater that I I wear um, when it's time to switch over to autumnal Dan. Uh, And I would say this is an Irish... uh Fisherman sweater, yes. Marled, marled would be yes. I think marled that's a good gray, description. Uh, and it was hand knit by the uh, the world's last remaining fishing, Patty. Fish, fishing, I believe his name is Patty. Patty, 
that's that's inappropriate. <laughs> uh, I'm Irish. It's okay. <laughs> this this also reminds my me name of is Daniel Francis Fallon. I think I get a wider berth uh, <laughs> on those jokes than most things. I'm thankful for. This also reminds me of uh, Best in Show, the. Uh, where they were talking about being grateful to live in a world with catalogs. <laughs> That's thankful, number one. Uh, we're just lucky to live in a world of catalogs. I'm, I'm not even going to go there because if we start talking about Best in Show, we, this will be the longest podcast we do. Oh, and, and probably the the least relevant to Correct. our interests, but Absolutely. also, you know, right on. Uh, no, the things I'm thankful for, I, I think I'm, I'm thankful for uh, my friends, and I think that's, uh, as we talked about uh, uh, during the pot off and, and in the past, you know, it's one of the cool things, and I think it's something we're all missing in the off-season is, you know, every Wednesday and Saturday, you get to see your friends at mm-hmm. matches, and you, you know, get to hug and, and you know, shake hands and uh, trade a little bit of banter back and forth. Uh, remind Liam that Stan Krinky is still the owner of Arsenal, for instance, <laughs> if we went with outside league talk on the pod. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a big part of it. And, you know, related to that, the, the community that's yeah, come up, come around. Uh, the second thing I'm thankful for is Neil, um, because Lavati, Lavati is, did not see that coming. He, he, he's just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't he? <laughs> uh, and one of the things we can talk about is a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a podcast planning session, uh, and, uh, I went out with, uh, Neil and, and Connor and, uh, we went to one of my favorite taverns, uh, that would be the Cocktails Paradise, and uh, those guys were so memorable that they were asking about them coming back a couple of weeks later. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, really a, really a shout out to those guys. I took them, you know, to the far side of the square, some of the places I really like. By the way, uh, shout out to Peter Wilt, uh, a Fulham football club hat just went walking oh. by us uh, on on here, the corner of Glenway and Monroe at the Give Me Some Truth Studios. Um, and and so uh, that's maybe the, the second thing. And the third thing I'm, I'm thankful for, I mean, turkey. Yeah. Food. Yeah, yeah. Just stuffing myself. Yes. Uh, Thanksgiving's I'm, a great holiday. It, it, you know, I, when you think about, like, what you really like about holidays, Thanksgiving should be everybody's number one because it's getting together with your family and yeah. friends and just committing gluttony yeah and and you don't have to buy anybody shit yeah you don't have anybody yeah not your wife not your girlfriend not your friends not the cousin that you see like yeah there's no gift giving there's no card giving it's just show up and eat now i I also want to respect that you know some people holidays are can be tough for a number of reasons don't have family and friends to celebrate with but i mean i think in terms of just uh if you just kind of look at them uh with a with a clear clear eye this would be the one to pick. And l- listen, this is going to be... Leaving out the, you know, kind of troubled history uh, of, you know, settlers yeah, coming to yeah. America I, and I all those things. I think, you know, the spirit of this is greater <laughs> than, the, than the history of it. <laughs> like uh, much of America. And, and you know, I, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, if you're alone on Thanksgiving, you should, you should call us up and invite yourself over to our houses. Uh, bear in mind, this podcast is coming out. Probably after the holidays. Yeah, after Thanksgiving. But no, but seriously, uh, going forward, I think, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't be alone on, on the holidays. And we, we, if you're, yeah. you know, you want to get together with someone, uh, you're welcome at our house because my dad bought an 18 pound turkey and there are three of us. So, you know, uh, I'm going to be handing that out on the, on the That's a lot corner. of turkey. Uh, it's six pounds per person, Dan. 
Good math. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's advanced math. Uh, what are you What are you doing on the on the holiday? Uh, I will be going to some, uh, my brother in law sister in law's house here in Madison. Uh, very They're my neighbors, right? They are. They live yeah. across the ravine from you. Um, low key affair. Just a, I think about eight of us getting together, and they kind of do a an early butternut squash soup. Uh, course, you can kind of come over anytime around eleven, and that is out along with the you know the requisite cheese and triscuits because we live in Wisconsin um, and Turkey. A good uh, cheddar, yeah, a good. Uh, oh yeah, they do a hooks. They usually get oh, a hooks age, nice. so uh, I'm into that. My brother in law is a big beer guy, so usually some some tasty beers to Are go around. Are you inviting me over? By the way, uh, no. Uh, that ravine is there for a reason, yeah. Keith. Keep, please stay on your side. I, I'm on the bad side of the ravine. Um, but yeah, just to, just to kind of maybe uh, re- reemphasize one point. And I, again, this is coming out after Thanksgiving, but I, I mean, I would encourage people, you know, I think the flock in particular, um, you know, a message, uh, a private message to the flock for all types of things. I think people can, uh, you know, help. I think there's a very strong feeling to try and help people out in any way we can. And um you know, I'm sure asking for help or saying you're you're alone on a holiday. I'm sure someone in our group uh, would happily uh, invite you over, uh, I'll be able to help you out. So. Yeah, and, and I think that goes beyond just uh, you know if you're alone on the on the holidays. Um, you know, one of the things as well is if you're involved in an organization and you're looking for volunteers, the flock is is mm-hmm. you know folks want to volunteer, they want to help out. It's it's part of building the community, um, and you know it. Just reach out on Facebook or or through the you know things, uh, and as well you know they're doing work over the over the holidays uh, you know uh, for uh, the food pantries in Madison and so Second Harvest is a big one. So if you're interested in doing something giving back, uh, you know I think many of us uh, in the flock feel incredibly fortunate with the the yep. good luck we've had in in life. If you're interested in giving back this season, uh, reach out. Uh, uh, you know Amanda Klinkner is uh, leading the the second harvest uh kind of food bank program uh and and has been doing a great job with that and would love to have more volunteers and if you have something that you're leading or or taking charge of you got you know drew the short straw uh you know reach out and and help out uh look for help uh speaking of the the flock uh who should we who are you know i think we can talk a little bit about who we're thankful that they signed because we've got players we've got a roster coming back uh you know, we, uh, a couple of names have already been announced. Uh, you want to start talking about that, Dan? Sure, or should yeah. I name names? Uh, <laughs> Is this some sort of, like, McCarthy era? We're going to yeah, yeah. we'll name names? We will name names. Uh, the, the following uh, we know are pink, uh, <laughs> pink flamingos. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, what we've seen is um, a number of our kind of veteran players who, who contributed – um, quite a bit during the season, uh, Don, Paulo, uh, JC, who I think, you know, as the season went on, we've all started to agree that, um, he really was, you know, uh, kind of the glue holding a lot of the team together. Not that it was falling apart, but he, you know, he played a lot of different roles throughout the season and, um, kind of, uh, tactically and, uh, maybe football brain is really kind of the heartbeat. I just used to, uh, incongruent uh analogies there but uh uh so yeah great to see jc back great to see paulo don um 
uh, back Eric Leonard, I think who's, you know, kind of the surprise package of the season. I think he got some nice publicity from our friends over at USL league one fun. Yeah. Um, they were happy to see him back again, a guy who came in with like limited fanfare, um, kind of went a very non-traditional route playing in, uh, kind of lower league soccer in Australia, but was, if I remember correctly, was named player of the year in that league, came back for, I believe, the open tryouts. Well, no, I'm sorry, the invited, invited tryouts, tryouts yeah. here, but obviously not guaranteed a spot and, um, you know, battled his way into the team, found himself really playing, sitting and uh, playing that number six position yeah. and being a key player all season. So huge congratulations to Eric, uh, a lot of showing a lot of professionalism and congrats on getting re-signed. Uh, we knew uh, Brian Silvestre was coming back yep. uh, because he had signed a, a two-year deal. Uh, the one I was uh, really, really excited, and I think yeah. uh, we, as well as you know, observers of League One, uh, came around on towards the end of the year, probably because we realized we hadn't sung his praises yeah. enough, uh, was uh, uh, Pato, who yeah. was announced in the form of, of a potato. <laughs> Um, which was then sold, you know, online. Um, sold numerous potatoes. Yes, yeah, seventeen with the logo, potatoes with the logo taped potatoes. to it. Um, I think they should have branded that. I think we need a. Oh yeah, that could know, have been cool. You can hot brand that yeah, potato. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know now, and then we also signed uh, Giro back as yeah. well. Um, and so you know, from, from a sort of outside perspective, I think one of the things that came out in the Giro announcement was, oh yeah, he can play left back. Yep. And I think people were thinking, oh, does that mean Pato won't be back? And no, he's back, which is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think there were some question marks at the end of the season because he went up and trained with uh, Minnesota United. Um, and then again, I, I, um, I might be getting the player wrong, but was it Connor Antley, um, who was actually transferred from, um, Tormenta. Yep. I should know these things. I have yep. a podcast about this league. Um, was transferred from, from uh, Tormenta to uh, the Peter Wilt uh, Indianapolis team, uh, Indy 11. Um, and that, that was a really interesting development because there's been a lot of talk. Would championship teams be willing to pay to get a, to get a player from, from League One? Um, now, the, f- the fees weren't disclosed or anything like that, but it, it appears that they did pay a transfer fee to release him from his contract. So you're thinking with Pato, even if he doesn't end up going to Minnesota, would a, would a championship team come in, come in for him? And who knows? Maybe somebody did and it just wasn't you know, yeah. worth, worth, the, worth the offer. But I think of all the signings, I mean, I think I kind of assumed a lot of the other guys would be back. Um, the Pato one feels like a little bit of a coup, like a guy who um, was, you know, ended up being named in the team of the year and uh, was up for defender of the year. But, was just but a fantastic I, player. I, I mean, I would say that Pato is available and came back to the team shows, to my mind, the, the uh, functional blindness of American <laughs> soccer, um, which is, you know, Pato is not a physically imposing uh, presence. We've joked here on the, the podcast, like uh, Wyatt, uh, and Connor being built on the great American center back yeah. factory in in uh, you know where they they used to produce Maytag washing machines in the middle of <laughs> Iowa and then shipped out because we have this image of like our defenders of being six three yeah you know uh, tall ruddy haired guy you know ruddy guys that will get you know pound the head balls out and yep. and that's not Pato right he's he's five six he's a smaller guy yep but. Tremendously skilled, tremendously smart. You yeah. know, we have, I think, inherited from England this idea that your your defenders need to get 
quote, stuck in. Correct. Unstuck, uh, unquote. Um, and, you know, I think of the Paolo Maldini quote where he's like, you know, if, I've, if I have to go in for a tackle, I've already made a mistake. Right. And so I think that's more what Pato is. And so the fact that he hasn't moved up in U.S. soccer is, how do I put this? unsurprising (laughs) yeah that's a good point and you know going back to your point about Giro I know him coming back raised questions about whether Pato's coming back but now the real question is is Pato going to go back to right back which I think would be his natural position he was playing out of position this year and does Giro slot in at left back or does Giro continue to be kind of the super sub that can pop in anywhere and really do a job for you and give you a lot of work rate and let other guys move to different places. So it'll be interesting to see as we, as we see more signings announced, um, if that's the case, if we see, a, a, if, if we see Pato back out on the right rather than on the well, left. Well, and, and, you know, I think Giro is a, is a good signing from a tactical point of view because he gives you so much flexibility yeah, along yeah. that left side, right? He, during the course of the year, came in for, uh, and played at left back, you know, yep. and and then also featured out in a more attacking role yep. uh, out on the left hand side. And one of the nice things there is, you know, I think we would all agree, you know, Paulo is uh, Paulo Junior is a more attacking player, yeah. very clearly. And you know, having Giro come in if you're defending a one one nil lead, having somebody who can pinch and drop a little yep. deeper, or even you know put the press on yep. up top is a nice tactical thing to have and a nice bit of flexibility. Uh, I, I think it's great uh, to see that we've got the the components of the, you know, two of our starting three midfielders back mm-hmm. as well. You know, we still have uh, that number nine role that we never really filled. But uh, in, you know, the great lost interview with Daryl, <laughs> I think we talked about everybody in the world is looking for a number nine. Yeah. Um, so that's still out there and still, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, and that's a good point because we don't mean to be flippant about number nines. I mean, people talk <clears throat> loads and loads of bollocks <laughs> about number nines uh, constantly about, you know, oh, you got to go find yourself a, a striker who scores 20 goals a year. I mean, you look at the top leagues in the world, that is a minuscule number of players. I mean, you know, maybe two or three in Germany, maybe two or three in England, you know. One in Italy because they like to, don't well, like to score, score goals. Six goals, um, but so it, that it's a very very hard thing to find. And the problem is once you find somebody who scores them, they usually move on to the next yeah. team. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do up top. And then at, at least how I see it right now, we don't have any center backs. Um, yeah. Which was the joke last year too, um, where <laughs> yeah. we had no because defenders we attacking players up and. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the question, uh, questions are still out about Connor. Um, I, from a health perspective, from a health perspective, Wyatt, um, is not coming back. I would assume, uh, Sean Russell was released. Um, and, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, and I, I don't know if potentially Eric Leonard is a player who we saw him play there, I think against Herta. Yeah. That could have been more a function of just kind of getting guys some rest, but I've actually thought he looked like one of our better players against Herta. He didn't seem kind of, overwhelmed by the fact that Hertha seemed to be playing with 13 players on the pitch. Um, but yeah, that, and, so that and, seems to be the one position right now up yeah. top and in, in, in the back where we, we haven't really made and, any And I think that, you know, the advantage of moving Eric into that, into that defending role is you get a ball playing center back. Um, yeah. and, and it's actually something it's interesting when you've, we've heard Neil and, and Connor talk about this, um, as we did a little bit in the, in the pot off, um, when they weren't starting, sharing drunk golf stories. Um, 
was, uh, you know, one of the things there is that ball playing is something that came later to, to Connor, and he had to work very hard on that. Yeah. And I think having a naturally proficient guy in that in that center back role will give us more options and yep. and allow the build a mm-hmm. little bit better. So yep. it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, Josie L was a loney. Uh, be interesting if he comes back. He he appeared for the Panamanian national team, yeah. which is super cool. I don't know if you saw uh, Stefan's soccer supply auctioned off a Panama Josie L jersey or uh, April Kagaya. Thank who, you for rubbing it in. I did not win. I entered. I even looked up uh, a Panamanian chant and put that in as my retweet. Apparently that did not get me over the line. Uh, but it does bring up, we should mention, uh, official, uh, you know, West Coast Division One team of the pod, Gonzaga. I think uh, that's the first time you've actually said it correctly. I have no idea what we officially <laughs> call them. I make it up every time I'm sitting here, Dan. Uh, but Demetrius Kagaya, uh, you know, our, our designated representative, uh, co-favorite player, because I think I've told you I used to coach uh, Chris Genin, who redshirted this year due to injury, uh, made a second team all-conference. So congratulations yeah, well to done. him. Well done. Well done. Well done. And then, then, you know, April wins the Panamania jersey. Uh it's all coming up, Kagaya. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to have to redo that. Uh, but, you know, I think here we've we've kind of recapped where we are in the offseason. One of the things that we wanted to use the offseason for was to do, uh, and one of the reasons I'm thankful for Neil is, is we get a different perspective on lower league soccer. But one of the things as well we wanted to do in this offseason was highlight that Forward Madison is not the beginning and end of soccer in Wisconsin. And to those ends, you know, Dan, we, we recorded an interview here with our, our next guest, Bob Gansler, um, and, you know, provide us a little bit more background on on that interview. And, and sure. Yeah, so um, Bob Gansler is the son of Bob Gansler, uh, who some of you may know was... But not a junior. Uh, not a junior, so they must have different middle names. Um who uh, so Bob the father uh, coached the nineteen 19- Pear Gansler <laughs> Pear Gansler coached the nineteen ninety uh, U.S. men's national team at the World Cup in Italy, our first World Cup in uh, 40, forty years. Forty Since years, nineteen fifty World Cup, um, when we beat England. Yes, uh, so he was the he was the coach of that uh, of that team. Uh, legendary Milwaukee area coach came up through the the Bavarian Soccer Club, which is kind of the, the focus of the interview to some degree. Coached um, at Marquette University right. High School, coached at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Yep, and just kind of a, a legendary figure in American soccer. Um, won an MLS uh, championship with the Wizards. Right. I mean, we, we could spend the next part of the episode recounting his resume, <laughs> quite frankly, and we could just trade stories about the 1990 World Cup yes. because that was, I think, our first World Cup where the... ABC broadcast the 1986 final uh, as part of the wide world of sports. Yeah. I remember that. And then the 1990 was... Uh, Which I recall, I I think we've we've debated about this. I seem to recall at least some of the matches being on USA. Um, And I... But what I certainly recall is that they went to commercial every 15 minutes or less like it was a sitcom and often goals were scored 
I would say they, every single were... goal of that World Cup because that was the like that that World Cup was such a turgid yeah, affair. Yeah. Well, it was in that Italy. they 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 created the like back pass rules to <laughs> yes. to create that. I, that and is if, true. if if people haven't watched the the Diego Maradona documentary, yeah, at one point he was the leading scorer in Serie A with like thirteen or fourteen goals one yeah. year. You know, yeah. and it's like to my point earlier, yeah. um, and. and even by Itali- current contemporary Italian standards, that's really low. Um, so you know that that really revolutionized, yeah. you know, because they put in the back pass rule essentially mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but it seemed like there were six goals scored that World Cup, and all I think six- Roger Miller scored all of them, didn't he? Oh, Another good documentary Roger to watch Mila. about the 1990 World Cup is the uh, is the um, Bobby Robson yeah. documentary they cover. Uh, the f- legendary English manager. They cover yeah. a lot of the 1990 World Cup. You get a, f- a bit of a flavor for what it was like there. There were a lot of issues with the England England fans. It was kind of the end of an era, almost, yeah. that 90 World Cup, kind of the last. Well, because England, you know, because of the, the you know, disaster at Heisel was, was banned from Europe. Um, and as a result of, you know, Maggie Thatcher's. And I'm going to wade into English politics. Maggie Thatcher, and now that Boris Johnson Yahoo, <laughs> you know, that they're their policies were basically designed to destroy football support in, in, you know, the United yeah. Kingdom. They viewed it as a game of hooligans and really it was a, the, the hooliganism was an expression of the fact that their policies were awful and destroyed the working class in Britain. Um, Viva la revolution. And so back to Bob Gansler, yeah. which I, I'm sure he's going to be really pumped about this intro. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, how Bob, he, yeah, Bob, the son, uh, uh, played uh, at Princeton University, which he'll talk a little bit about in the interview, under the equally as legendary uh, Bob Bradley. Um, He'll talk a little bit about Bob's feisty competitiveness. Um, But uh, the reason Bob kind of came onto our radar was this very interesting Twitter feed that he runs. And Keith, you kind of, uh, I think, hipped me to this. Um, And it's just a fascinating look at the history, history of soccer based in Wisconsin through the lens of Bavarians, but often kind of just cataloging just amazing things that were going on here at really the early. And and so the the reason it really came to my attention is I think, uh, you know, around the uh, match that we hosted with her to Berlin, it was like discussions of, Oh, Teams from the Bundesliga had appeared in the in the United States before. On the way to the '86 World Cup, a bunch of players from Bayern Munich stopped and played a friendly uh, against the Bavarians in the, in the '80s. They had come in the in the 1960s and they drew. And that was the other thing that you know kind of drew my attention was, you know, big matches drew people. I mm-hmm. mean, there were 3,000 for a match in the 1920s, uh, his Twitter feed brought up. So really what we wanted to to bring in was that, you know, we get, I think, caught up in our contemporary debates about promotion relegation, what's community soccer. Uh, community soccer predates all of us, and the Bavarians are a timeless example of it, the Croatians as well. And it's maybe for a lot of people who are just getting into soccer, a history that they may not be familiar with of the origins of soccer in the United States and that soccer in the United States has been, been being played at a, a competitive level and an interesting level in Wisconsin and in the United States. And really, these clubs are the ones that sustain soccer, uh, both early on and until kind of, you know, you had the, the Pele arrival of, of, you know, the cosmos and kicks and all that. So without further ado, we, we go to Bob for uh, this interview.
thank you very much uh, for listening here. We've got a very uh, special guest uh, for this next segment. Dan and I are going to be talking with uh, Bob Ganza, who runs a uh, sort of Wisconsin soccer history account. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, Bob. You may prefer to think of it as more uh, Bavarian soccer club uh, oriented out of Milwaukee. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about the, the account that, that you run? All right. Well, it first started on Facebook when my wife finally signed me up for Facebook and I got into that. And I noticed that the uh, Bavarian Soccer Club had a Facebook account and uh, not much was being put on there. And I had started, I think it was 2014, uh, as a number of stories start, uh, Googling myself, and I came across <laughs> uh, that the Milwaukee Journal and Milwaukee Sentinel were archived on a Google newspaper, on Google newspapers, and so it brought up a bunch of articles on my dad. So I thought, oh, well, I will, uh, I'll copy these down, I'll give it to him, and then I kept on searching, and I found more, and then I found more, and then I started thinking, well, what if I put in some other names that I knew from club history, and I found more. And then I found things that predated my dad. And, I mean, I, growing up in the club, I knew that it started in 1929, and I knew some of the people that were some of the early members, and that I didn't know any of the founding members. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, there's probably a few articles, and what I found is that there's more, that there was a great deal of coverage back in the, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s that and so I just kept on finding stuff and kept on putting it together and thinking well this will be for my entertainment uh, for my dad's and then when there's a Facebook group I was like oh well maybe I could post some of the stuff there and people seem to be interested so I kept on gathering more and more and then I found about found out about Twitter and I thought well, maybe I could post some things there too. Uh, maybe not just uh, Bavarian-focused stuff, but since I've found lots of things about other clubs and the years before uh, Bavarian Club started, I thought that would be a good place to put it. Uh, one, one thing before we kind of go into more depth about this, is there anything from that coverage of the 1920s, 30s, 40s that surprised you that, I mean, that you know you knew a fair amount about Bavarian club history. I think your family's involvement dates from the late 1950s or so from what I've gathered. Yeah, um, that's but, when my dad started playing. Yeah. And was there anything from the 20s, 30s, 40s that you saw and went, oh my goodness, I would have never guessed that or thought that or? Um, I had no idea how many teams were playing back then. I had no idea how many German clubs that there were back then. I mean, from from my playing days, there were the Bavarians, there was Sport Club, there were the Brewers. Mm -hmm. um, but back in the 30s, there was uh, VFR Schwaben, there was uh, FC Wacker, there was Vienna AC, there was a Deutscher Sport Club, a Deutscher Sport Verein. There were so many clubs that never made it out of the 40s, but were, were, powers at that time both in the state and and regionally mm -hmm. so. yeah bob and I, I was you know you brought up a, a good point there that some of these clubs didn't make it out of the 40s and before we got on 
Keith and I were talking about this, there seems to be, you know, my, my understanding of kind of the history of U.S. soccer is there was this um, very rich um, club soccer culture all across the country, really, from the, you know, early 1900s up until about World War II. And then, um, you know, <laughs> post-World War II, there may have been a feeling of, well, you know, it's time to assimilate. And um, a lot of people, a lot of that kind of culture and history started to go away as people kind of came out of World War II and started having families moving to the suburbs. Is that kind of an accurate um, representation, you think, of what happened um, with some of the clubs in Wisconsin? I think so. Um, talking with other people about it, uh, that that seems to be the case. Um, I guess also in terms of the, the post-war era that soccer was viewed as a, a foreign sport. Right. And so there was... Uh, less uh, desire to be seen as foreigners, even if they were first generation immigrants uh, to, like you're saying, to, to assimilate more. Right. But it never, it never quite went away. One of the things that surprised me about the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, how much of a regional component there was for these teams that they would play Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit. Uh, I didn't get a sense that there was as much uh, Minneapolis level uh, play, but what within the, the, have you sort of developed a sense of the rise and fall of various regional leagues as you've uh, research this and what have you seen and and you know it seems like every few years there's a new regional league either in you know uh, amateur soccer or lower division uh, American pro soccer and that seems to be a trend over the last uh, you know 90 years or so 100 years almost of American soccer. Yeah it it seemed that at least in the Midwest that those regional leagues were, were more informal or were, were just sort of a, a temporary arrangement uh, amongst clubs. Um, I mean, there seemed to be uh, somewhat of a sustained competition between Chicago teams and, and St. Louis teams. And back in even the, the teens that some of, some of the Wisconsin teams would play in the Peel Cup, which was the, the biggest competition in Illinois. So there, there was that regional aspect and teams seemed to travel, but it that it wasn't like firmly established leagues that they were really trying to do something for the long term. It was sort of uh, when, when, when circumstances uh, allowed that they put things together. Bob, and, you know, I know um, question about that time period as well. I know Bavarians has prided themselves on being an amateur club, um, but we're in it. Do we have a sense for whether there were players being paid? Were they, were there, you know, were there professionals playing alongside amateurs? You know, a little bit of that whole, like, Hey, you get a goal this game. Uh, we got something for you at the end of the match. <laughs> or I, oh, I think one, uh, one of the clubs was Rich Tigers, which I think was named after a manufacturer of some sort, if I remember correctly. Uh, a jeweler. A or, jeweler. Or, actually, no. What, uh, oh, gosh. Was he a jeweler or a, a fur? I think he was a furrier. Okay. <laughs> uh, R Richard Rich. And so he sponsored the team for a, a, a very long time. So um, I have no doubt that there, yeah. there were some people getting paid uh, even up through my father's era yeah. that, I mean, he's mentioned that there were pe people that 
move from club to club. Like, well, why would he have moved from that club to that club? <laughs> well, because they made him a better offer. Like, okay, he was starting. What else? <laughs> so I was showing my naivete at that age of why. So there, there was some of that going on. Um, something I did find out about Bavarian club, I mean, at a time for, in the, well, back when I was a little kid, one time I was climbing up on chairs and looking at some of the trophies on, on the top shelf of the Rothskeller. And I saw a trophy there that's from like the 1930s that said FC Bayern Schlitz won something. And I thought, well, at that point they were, we were sponsored by Old Style. And before that, it was, was Pabst forever since the 60s. Like, when were we sponsored by Schlitz? And I couldn't, nobody could seem to answer that question. Nobody was still around. Well, after doing some research, I found that, well, yeah, they were, they were sponsored by Schlitz. And that for a period, they actually operated as a semi-pro team combining with another club, Vienna AC. And they were playing then in a, it was called the Interstate Soccer League. They were playing against all sorts of teams from Illinois. So at that time, they actually were avowedly professional. Huh. Um, and so uh, any other kind of discoveries like that uh, relating to the, to the history of the club? Actually, and, and the other thing is that I wanted to mention was uh, you brought up the idea of the Rothskeller. And one of the things that I think uh, is kind of interesting is particularly – there was an article that you posted a couple of weeks ago about how the, the club has dances uh, or had dances and, and, you know, it was sort of part of a, a, a big afternoon out. And uh, even I think it's a tradition that's carried on to this day with the Bavarians at their big fall tournament is the Oktoberfest tournament mm -hmm. to kind of indicate was that uh, kind of culture of dances and it being as much a social club as a soccer club around when you were a kid growing up? Um, and how did it change over time as you've seen it? Um, it, it certainly was. I mean, the, the, I mean, the club, the actual soccer club was one of a group of five different Bavarian societies that Together, they owned the Bavarian Inn. Together, they owned all the land. Together, they had the old Heidelberg Park where the Oktoberfest would go on. There would also be a Volksfest uh, in the summer. So all, all five of those societies worked together to, to run those things. So, um, yeah, those things were going on every year. There, there would be the, the Christmas party. The soccer club would have a Christmas party every year. And um well about starting about this time each year i'll be posting embarrassing pictures of myself <laughs> and my siblings as as we were dressed up in costume for the various performances so it was uh it was uh, in a a fun time but um in the there still were back when i was a kid i mean there were still some of the early members there still were a lot of uh people like my dad who were first generation immigrants. So they, even, even if they weren't actual uh, Bavarians by ethnicity, they were all German. And so they, they would uh, partake in all these uh, ethnic activities. Yeah. And Bob, Keith and I, have, we've, we've covered this before. And while we have a pretty strict uh, rule about 
discussing our own playing careers on our podcast since neither of us ever played professionally. Um, you know, I, I, I moved around a lot growing up as a kid, but lived in, uh, in Shorewood and played for Mequon United. Um, and as a, as a kid, um, it, it, you know, now as I reflect back on it, you know, playing against Bavarians, Polonia, um, the Croatian Eagles, playing out at Soccer America, where if I recall the guys behind me when I was playing in goal were uh, smoking and watching, I believe, Napoli. I think it was an Italian group that would mm. were big Maradona fans. Can you give some like folks a little bit of a sense of some of the other clubs that exist in Milwaukee? Um, how similar or dissimilar are they to Bavarians? And, you know, what has that culture been like for you growing up in it and kind of seeing all these different ethnic teams? Um, well, I, I l always would like to say that Bavarians were the best in terms of both, <laughs> both, both soccer and, uh, and, and the ethnic aspect. But um, you had places like uh, Sport Club. They, I mean, their name doesn't sound all that German, but they were, they're all Donauschwaben and Danube Swabians. And so, I mean, they have a, they have a, they had a complex, they would, they had a group of, uh, a number of groups of uh, German uh, ethnic identity. And actually the, the town that my dad comes from, they, since about half the town eventually emigrated to or immigrated to Milwaukee, that they have their own ethnic <laughs> club, the, the, the Moochie family club. And so that, that actually is based out there at the Schwabenhof. So you had that, uh, Polonia had, had a complex, uh, in the United Serbians, mm -hmm. they have a field, but then everything really revolves around the, the church that they have there. Right. So, uh, and they have festivals there. So, um, the Eagles, the Croatian Eagles, they have a, a, a very big, uh, complex and, um, they put on events there as well. So, I mean, it was always, it was always fun when I was a kid go going along to watch my dad's games at these various places when they'd have special tournaments. Cause it was, you just see people and people would be not necessarily in the, 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 the most ethnic costumes, but they, there'd be in, they'd be in something that you go, well, that doesn't look normal. That doesn't, <laughs> but, uh, and hearing other languages, it, I mean, it made, it made for, uh, a pretty neat experience. Yeah. Uh, who would you guys, or if, if you were left to say, who would, who would be your, your major rival from the either, you know, from the 50s, 60s era to, to when you played, did it stay the same? Were there changing rivalries? Um, who were you, who did you wa really want to beat? <laughs> uh, well, let's see what probably in my, in my dad's day, it was the, it was the Brewers. They were, I mean, even though, as as my dad has told me many many times over the years, and his contemporaries as well, that they won seven straight Wisconsin State League titles, something that was never done before, never will be done again. <laughs> um, but in the course of, they, they won the state league titles, but they seem to to have a knack of coming up short in the amateur and open cup and usually against the Brewers. So that they were the, they were probably the arch rival at, at that time. And was and there a like, connection with the Brewers to a particular uh, community or was it sponsored by, uh, you know, one of the breweries in town or was it just a name that they took on? Uh, when they started, they, 
it was most of them were working for Schlitz Brewery at the time. And uh, they had, so, and most of them were of German extraction. Um, they, they probably opened up to non-Germans earlier than um, some of the other German clubs in the, in the 50s and 60s. And eventually then they got, they were sponsored by uh, old Milwaukee uh, beer. Um, when it got to, to my day, uh, probably it was the United Serbians and the, and the Madison 56ers that we had the, the, the toughest games with. One, uh, a little bit of Madison soccer history. They won a national amateur championship in 1992. I remember going yes, out to, did. out to the East side to, to watch that as a, as a wee lad, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that we haven't touched on, we've talked a little bit about the, the history, um, you know, our fans obviously through JC banks are, are familiar with, with Jim, Jimmy banks and kind of his legacy. Who are some of the, uh, the other kind of famous players, uh, players who made Milwaukee famous to steal from the, the beer slogan uh, that, that our fans may not have, have heard from or heard well, of pardon well you at least um from the varying soccer club there were a number of uh players that that appeared for the national team my dad for one uh richie schweinert made a number of appearances in in the 60s uh wally ziaya was on the olympic team in 1972 in in munich um uh Roland Sickinger um, was on the youth national teams and he ended up playing a number of years in the NASL and the MISL and I think a year in the US, the original USL once upon a time. Um, uh, there have been a number of players that 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 played in the in the American soccer original American Soccer League and North American Soccer League. Uh, Hayden Knight, um, who went on to coach uh, and win a couple of state championships with uh, Cedarburg High School as yep. well. Yep. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, Tommy Alioto played a number of clubs in the in the ASL. Lito Zabala as well. Um, Pete Knezic, who had played for. Uh, the Serbians, he played for a long time for the Milwaukee Wave. So there were there are a lot of players um, who played in the ethnic leagues that when, um, when the Wave started indoor soccer, that uh, a lot of a lot of the best players caught on with them. Uh, do you mind if we ask just a little bit about your own kind of playing career? When did you make the the step up to the to the majors? How old were you? Because Bavarians had a youth club, I assume, yep. and then they had the major team, which was the adult mm -hmm. setup that would compete for the sort of state leagues and and the national mm -hmm. amateur cup. When did you make the jump up to the majors? And was that a, a pretty big day in the household? And oh yes. Uh... <laughs> It was August of 1987, so I'd recently turned 18, and uh, I had been practicing with the major team, but hadn't been asked to go to any of the, the summer tournaments, and I'd be, I was going to be going off to college uh, at the end of the month, 
but we had our uh, Joe Moosemiller tournament at the time. And so I've been practicing and uh, two days before the tournament was supposed to start, uh, Coach Spielman said, can you, can you suit up this weekend? And I said, well, my family's planning on going off to Green Bay for the weekend for our <laughs> family trip. Uh, we're, we're, leaving, we're leaving tonight and we weren't going to come back till Sunday. So I go home and I tell my dad, my dad says, well, I guess we're coming back Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> and do, so you that, do you remember who lined up uh, alongside of you in, in 1987, who you uh, squared off against, all those kind of details? Um, we, played, we played against Racine Soccer Club, and we, we must have played at least one other game. We played then in the final against Milwaukee Serbians, and I remember that we lost in the final, <laughs> breaking our streak of, I think, six Moose Miller tournaments in a row. So I was disappointed to, to, to help end the streak, but I was completely excited to, to make my debut. And then you off to college where you played collegiately, correct? I played for Princeton. Under uh, a certain Bob Bradley, is that correct? Yes, I did. Um, do you have any good Bob Bradley stories that you can uh, share on air? Share <laughs> on air. <laughs> um, but he, he was a good coach. He was a, a very fierce competitor. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was only, he was class of 80. So he was, uh, he was only uh, 11 years older than me. Okay. And so he felt he still had it. So when we get into scrimmages, he'd usually, he'd usually get on the field. And he would do what he'd do whatever it took to win the scrimmage or, or he wouldn't let the scrimmage end until his team won. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, Dan and I have talked about are sort of, I remember when growing up, when you went down to Milwaukee, it just seemed like uh, guys in some sense understood perhaps the, the dark arts. Uh, I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, you'd, you'd be on a, on a corner kick in your Jersey almost every time starting from about U 12, you know, the guy would, would know to, to hang on to your shirt and, and all of those things. Did you notice a difference when you went off to the East coast in the physicality of the soccer or anything like that? I, I'd be curious to hear about that. Um, I felt it was more, subtle in in Milwaukee than than it was playing out on the east coast and the east coast it was more straightforward in terms of what they were going to do to you <laughs> they 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 tell you right up front and then and then lay into it yeah yes I should, uh, I, I should know bob I, that after i moved from Milwaukee i then moved to long island and uh, i think that is a very ac i am also an accurate representation of that so <laughs> <laughs> not no subtlety at all to dan's game <laughs> well i mean for my part, being six foot four, and I was sort of the, the target on our corner kicks, uh, I, I learned very soon or very quickly that I needed to make sure that I was still going to be able to get to the ball because there were going to people that there were people that were going to impede me in every in any and every way possible. It's like it sometimes was was diff, it was sometimes difficult to get airborne when you had two people holding on to you. <laughs> Hanging on, you know, kind of bear hug style, mm -hmm. I would imagine a little bit more. Uh, 
anything else you want to ask about Dan before? Well, uh, I, I, this is a very random question, Bob. My my very first uh, outdoor professional soccer game that I saw was USA versus East Germany at County Stadium, I believe in the late summer of 1990 after the World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question would be, I believe, was your, was your dad coaching that team and were you at that match? You must have been. I was at that game, yes, and my dad my dad was coaching that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember as my brother was a uh, a vendor at County Stadium, and I think they gave him the tickets for free. Um, and as a soccer junkie, that I I'll, I'll never forget that day. It's still burned into my brain. So yeah, that I got a well a related story to that was that so when they came when the U.S. team came for that that they were training uh, before the game they were training at the Bavarian Club. And so on one of the days of, of training, the Bavarian team, we actually came out and we, we scrimmaged against the U.S. national team. And so that was, uh, well, it was, a, it was a bit daunting and a, a bit <laughs> eye-opening that I mean, here we are, we, we figure we're one of the best clubs in the country and we know, okay, they've got, they've got the best players in the country, but there were, there was a big step up between, <laughs> between them and us. And uh, last year when I was digging through some stuff at my parents' house, because when, when I'm there, I'm usually doing that and finding interesting things. Um, I found that there was a videotape of that game. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. My dad didn't remember that. My mom didn't remember it. She has no <laughs> idea how it ended up in in the house, but I have a, a video, it's a little grainy and I'm trying to figure out how to uh, restore it, but uh, got a videotape of that game where they thrashed us five, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> before, before we let you go and uh, you know, thanks again for appearing with us and thank you for your time. I, uh, kind of my twofold question is, do you foresee this, this uh, kind of uh, Twitter feed going somewhere uh, more? Are you thinking about putting together a, a book, you know, even as a sort of hobby project of, of you know, Wisconsin soccer history or something like that? Uh, and um, any other kind of Twitter accounts that you find interesting in the sort of broader kind of soccer history realm? Okay. Um, yes, the, the thought of writing a book has come into my head numerous times. I mean, I I have put together all of the information that I've collected into a whole slew of Word documents. Uh, and being the engineer, I've got it linked to spreadsheets so that I can, <laughs> that, that's how I know what happens on every single day because of my spreadsheets tell me based upon, and uh, based upon all the logic that I've created. Um, so I expect to, I mean, keep on doing this. I'm always gathering more information. Right now, I've been getting uh, old microfilms of some of the old uh, German newspapers that did a lot of soccer coverage. And well, that poses a challenge because I mean, my German isn't great, but it's still pretty good, except that it's written in this old German Fraktur script, which, <laughs> um, well, let's just say that Every cap, capital letters, you you can't tell what they are, <laughs> and in Germ, and, and in German, every noun is capitalized. So, 
most of the time I'm in, I'm deciphering the word by everything but the first letter. <laughs> um, but yeah, putting putting it all together is something that that appeals to me. Um, I don't know if it would just be a scrapbook, or I mean, I'm sure I could write a narrative uh, linking linking the things together. Well, you've got um, ten years to write. You know, on the hundredth anniversary of the Bavarians, yeah, you could write a hundredth anniversary uh, book that, as that, well. That's when when some people are asking, "Are you going to write a book about this?" And I go, "Well, I'd like to get it done by the 90th, but I don't think I, I, I don't have I don't have all the information yet that I that I want to have. So maybe by the hundredth that I could have that together. But um, I mean, I've expanded my scope. I've been fine uh, in the actually just the past few months gathering a lot more information about stuff. That I, well, my file is called prehistory. So anything <laughs> before 1929 in Wisconsin soccer. Uh, so I've been gathering a lot more information about what what it was uh, before the Bavarians arrived on the scene. Um, so there are there are a number of well, what else I might do with it. Um, actually, one of my old Princeton teammates is now the president of the Society for American Soccer History. So they've been starting to to put some things together. They uh, were at the last uh, USSF general uh, general meeting, doing some presentations. So um, I think that there's some opportunity to to work more with with those folks and putting together. I mean, I know my friend Tom is Tom McCabe has been putting information together about how soccer developed in New Jersey so uh, somebody else wrote a recent book about soccer in Chicago so all of us with sort of a, a very limited geographical uh, focus well maybe we put all the pieces together someday mm -hmm. yeah oh that would be that would be fantastic uh, relatedly any of those guys have Twitter accounts or anything else that folks should should check out if they're yeah, interested um, in this history the Society for American Soccer History has a Twitter account. There's there's a 1930s, I think it's called like the 1930s project, which somebody's been gathering all the information about the original World Cup that happened in 1930. Um, Tom McCabe has his um, his Twitter feed that he uh, talks about about soccer across all sorts of different uh, times and places. Um, and, uh, those are some of the, the main ones that I follow. Mm -hmm. Anything else, Dan? Thanks again for, for your time. Um, okay. we're going to, uh, wrap the interview up here and, uh, thanks very much for, for appearing with us. And we hope to have you back on, maybe talk a little bit more about, maybe you can give us some Bob Bradley stories since, uh, Daryl, our Daryl Shore, our head coach, uh, coached with him for a while. And, uh, okay. we, we, you know, we're always looking for stories we can use against Daryl as well, <laughs> but, uh, okay. really, really appreciate your time. And, uh, thanks my again. Pleasure. All right. Thanks again to Bob Ganser for that interview. Uh, Dan, uh, is this the last podcast of the year? No, I think. Um, well, I mean, that's that, that's a weird question because, I mean, it it could be it might not be. This may be heard. I mean, we're we're kind of we are wandering into like Prince territory here with like the famous vault at Paisley Park where these apparently like, you know, albums and albums worth of like funky cuts live that. Prince never let see the light of day, which may end up coming out because his well, estate yeah, planning was, cash in. was nil. Um, uh, well, and it's also like, uh, you know, uh, I think 
Max Broad, you know, was instructed by Kafka to burn all of his <laughs> manuscripts. And he didn't. He's like, I, I owe it to the history of literature to release these. And I think the history of popular music, you know. Right. Now, nobody needs to hear our podcast, but I mean, who know, we have so uh, many uh, now. And I think uh, just, you know, that have not seen the light. Well, of and, and, and unfortunately, the, the Kafka reference works uh, yeah. so well because it's like we're we're like stuck in the trial. Uh, we've just had technical failure after technical failure. We are going to bring in Neil and Connor to kind of right re- because if you're waiting the for pod, the live pod, yeah, you are never going to hear that unless so you were there. The, the SD chip was destroyed. <laughs> uh, we're not sure if it was it deliberate was, or accidental. Yeah, yeah, it was dunked in a, a pink flamingo slushy, slushy that night. It was the same person who burned down the Mallards uh, <laughs> <laughs> team shop out at out at uh, Warner Stadium. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so we're at this point where we're like producing podcasts for no one. It, it feels very much like we're in the trial. Uh, but it's like being uh, it's like being in high school and being in a band that never plays outside of the basement. <laughs> We've got a gig, guys. Um, but Dan and I just like talking to each other so much that I think that's why we do it. Uh, but until next time, so we are going to get together here in in uh, another week uh, or two uh, to record another edition. This I have, some, come I have some concerts in between there yeah, now and then. A- after uh, Thanksgiving, and then we're going to get together, host a podcast. Hopefully we'll have... Uh, shockingly daryl wants to come back on yeah even though we had daryl on for uh, literally what uh, this is actually i'm not being facetious i actually think was probably one of our best podcasts just because talking to daryl was really really interesting and i felt like he he gave us a lot of insight into how they develop (laughs) develop the team over the course season we won't take too much away but after i had to tell him that it would never see the light of day due to technical difficulties he said he was willing to come back which i found rather shocking yeah i i'm amazed and thanks daryl uh <laughs> you know i like to think that we're like prince that we're actually hiding these away because we're such perfectionists yeah, and then i realize what we've released and the just sheer garbage yeah, it's just ineptitude yeah uh so again uh we're thankful for producer hannah really uh in any case uh until next time uh we say forwards not backwards upwards not forwards and always twirling 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 towards freedom we miss you, Prince. Don't let them beat you. Flamingos, don't let them beat you. We are with you. We are always with you.